We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Yeah, I was talking to Joe, and I said, Joe, a few days ago, I wasn't sure what I was going to talk about in this podcast, and a few things happened. Well, yeah, we had Trump. Happened. We had Trump. I thought that'll be good. And then Morrison with this whole fiasco. Holy smokes, dear listener. What the last couple of days, what a real moment in Australian political history, I think. So we've got lots to talk about and it's all very interesting. And, you know, in the lead up to the last election, Twitter was just on fire with with people just going for Morrison and just just spewing out hatred for the man. And it all went quiet after the election and Twitter was sort of like this different zone. And and I have to say that it returned to the good old days in the last 48 hours as people have gone nuts talking about what Morrison did that we've found out about. So, yeah, this is the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast. If you are in the chat room, say hello and we'll say hello to you. I'm Trevor. AKA the Iron Fist with me, Joe the Tech Guy, as always. Thanks, Joe. Evening all. Mm. So we're going to talk about Morrison and and just what he got up to with these secret ministries and the response from politicians and from the public. It's going to be quite interesting, dear listener, because, as you know, I subscribe to the Courier Mail and the Australian and I can therefore read the comments section. And why would you? <laughs> Just why would you inflict that on yourself? Because it's important to get out of your bubble and just to check on what's going on out there. And it's going to be as good as YouTube comments, I'm sure. Yeah. So we'll get to that and we'll probably get on to a bit of a Trump and who knows what else we'll get on to. If you're in the chat room, say hello. John's in the chat room. Hello, John. All right. Well, Joe, I did have. A little subheading in my notes about Scott Morrison's secret swearing in to three ministerial portfolios. I've just got to update that, make it five. To five? Yes. <laughs> I, I did hear these rumours. Yeah, that's probably it in terms of the number of ministerial appointments. And, you know, what we're yet to find out is what decisions he made in those portfolios, we'll get, there's one important one that we'll get onto in relation to a gas field off Newcastle. But yeah, dear listener, this is 16th of August, 2022. So just a couple of a day or so after it was revealed that Scott Morrison had, in secret, been appointed to five portfolios as a minister, and they were health, finance, home affairs, treasury and industry, science, industry and resources. So. Did I get all that right? Health is one, finance is one, home affairs, treasury, yeah, and then industry, science and resources. So in secret, Joe, and the rationale for this was that it was awkward times, a pandemic was hitting the world, decisions had to be made hard and fast and quick, and what if the health minister, for example, got sick? 
and there was an urgent ministerial decision that had to be made uh, and the health minister was sick, well, wouldn't it be great if, say, Scott Morrison was already in place as a health minister and he could seamlessly make the decision that Greg Hunt could not make on his sickbed and therefore the government would continue to look after Australians, Joe. That seems to be the rationale, or have I missed something? Well, you saw the comment that actually before COVID came in, he'd already been secretly sworn in. No, I didn't see that. Yeah, I'm sure it said somewhere that one of the, at least one of them, he was sworn in before COVID started. Mm, I didn't see that. But okay, let's just go back, assuming they're all post-COVID, and the rationale is that that things could be so desperate that you need decisions so quickly that you wouldn't have time to... To go to the Governor-General and ask him to appoint somebody else. It's just ludicrous. Like, it doesn't take long to appoint somebody as a minister. I mean, what you would do is you would say, hey, we need a plan B here in case Greg gets sick. Whoever his assistant minister is or somebody, make sure you go to all the meetings and be ready to assume his power if necessary. Keep your phone on at night in case we need to ring you. You know, that's it it doesn't take long to have a swearing-in ceremony. If you're of that level of government, you've got AFP stood outside your door anyway. Yes. So you don't need your phone on. The AFP will come and knock. Yeah. Yeah. But, okay, and if you accept that that's wrong, my thinking there, that somehow there's a problem with that, that that waiting 12 hours for a new minister isn't good enough, why keep it a secret? Why not tell everybody, hey, this is what we're doing. We are appointing... Extra ministers. Because the press would have crucified him. <laughs> oh, oh, no, wait, the press is in his pocket anyway. Yeah. It just does not make any sense at all. The only way this makes sense, if you decide that Scott Morrison is just a sociopathic megalomaniac with an unbelievable ego who... Who'd ever think that? I can't yeah, believe it. with a messiah complex and who's just a screaming little grub and has no regard for democracy or for the rule of law, then it all makes perfect sense. But there's no way you can look at this if he's an honest operator and find a rationale that makes sense. He's just a corrupt rub is what he is. Look, I I think the reason was he was worried that the the rapture was going to happen and he needed (laughs) to be able to make sure that when all of his party when all of his cabinet got um, raptured Mm. and he was left behind that he would be able to put processes in place yes that 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 could be it that could be an explanation so you know if you are worried about people dropping like flies in a pandemic and the wheels of government grinding to a halt because people are in their sick or deathbed so you're trying to build in some plan b plan c plan d what you wouldn't do is is delegate all of this extra power to one person. Like, what if Scott Morrison gets sick? Then all of your plan Bs suddenly fall over because you 
you he appointed wasn't him. Get sick. He was protected by the blood of Jesus. You have to remember that. This is where it just there is nothing in here that people can hang their hat on and try and make sense of this. The idea that oh, we're worried about people getting sick. We need to spread the risk. Oh, we'll spread the risk by delegating Plan B to one single person, the Prime Minister Scott Morrison, Mm. and not tell anybody about it. Doesn't make sense. It certainly looks shady, doesn't it? Yeah. One of the things about this is that the... The health minister, let me just see here. I'll try and get to some of these notes. I've, I've sort of rattled through some of the stuff I wanted to say. but so, so this all became, this has all come to light because of a book that's come out, Plagued, I think it is, something like that. And there was an extract from the book printed in The Australian. So for those of you who don't subscribe to The Australian, I'll read you what the book extract says or part of it, which will give you a bit of a flavour of, of how this book is written. Apparently the author is a mate of Scott Morrison's. So, so anyway, this is what was printed, some of what was printed in The Australian, which is a kind of an extract from this book, Plagued by Simon Benson and Jeff Chambers, published by Pantera Press. Here we go. On March 18th, COVID-19 was spreading internationally and in the Australian community, Australia's daily case numbers were running in triple digits. The pace of the virus was accelerating and with vastly more serious measures likely to be required, Morrison was worried that even National Cabinet might not always be able to act quickly enough. He and Hunt had been considering a drastic measure, invoking the emergency powers, the so-called trumping provisions, under the little-known Section 475 of the Biosecurity Act, which would empower the Governor-General to declare a human biosecurity emergency. A declaration under Section 475 gave Hunt, as Health Minister, exclusive and extraordinary powers. He, and only he, could personally make directives that overrode any other law. Not bad. And were not disallowable by Parliament. It's a hell of a section. He had authority to direct any citizen in the country to do something or not do something to prevent spread of the disease. Well, here's the clue, dear listener. How do you think a guy like Scott Morrison would feel knowing that his health minister has more power than he has? Has more power. Oh, yeah. That's... That is where this all starts, dear listener, is the idea that as Prime Minister you would have a health minister with such power and the power is given to the health minister under this Section 475. So personally I think this is where it all started, where Morrison was feeling, shit, I don't want, I don't want Greg Hunt to have more power than me and, and he concocted this idea of becoming a joint health minister so he wouldn't lose in a power battle with Greg Hunt. And I think that having done it once, he thought and got away with it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That was easy. And then he thought, I'll do it again and again and again and again because he just felt good being appointed. Minister for everything. And he thought to himself, hmm, this could become in handy. If I have a dispute with one of these ministers, I can say, oh, by the way, I'm also a minister. 
which he did do at one point. We'll get to that. But, you know, that, I reckon, is, is how this thing starts. So, uh, and he wasn't taking a minister's salary. Well, imagine if he'd been claiming all five ministerial yeah. salaries as well. Do we know that he wasn't? Well, no, we don't. Yeah. Maybe he was. Yeah. Maybe that's why he was doing it. Yeah. I think it's this power thing to start with. I'll read on from this extract. Morrison knew that if he asked the Governor-General to invoke Section 475, he effectively would be handing Hunt control of the country. If they were going to use them, Morrison wanted protocols set up as well as a formal process to impose constraints. The protocols required the Minister to provide written medical advice and advance notice of his intentions to the National Security Cabinet. So Morrison wanted protocols sort of slowing the minister down. Let's just pause, Joe. I mean, do we really want a Section 475 that gives such power to a health minister? Maybe that section should give it to the Prime Minister in the first place or or my, to my, my Cabinet. My concern is that it can't be overridden. Mm. It's, it seems a pretty silly section on the face of it to, yeah. to be giving such... I, Enormous power. I, I, I understand emergency mm. powers, but mm. usually you have some form of oversight. Yeah. Even if it's to second guess and they say the courts can disallow this or the courts can do whatever. Yeah. it's It seems a section that's very broad and consequently mm -hmm. very dangerous. Anyway, so Morrison wanted protocols which would require the minister to provide written medical advice and advance notice of his intentions. Well, his whole thing in this is we need to act quickly. I need to be appointed as a health minister. Meanwhile, he's dreaming up ways of slowing down Greg Hunt if he needs to. Mm -hmm. <laughs> anyway, however, Morrison wasn't satisfied, feeling that there needed to be more checks and balances before any single minister could wield such powers. One option was to delegate the powers to Cabinet, but Attorney-General Christian Poor's advice was these powers could not be delegated and could reside only with the Health Minister. Morrison then hatched a radical and until now secret plan with Porter's approval. He would swear himself in as Health Minister alongside Hunt. Such a move was without precedent, let alone being done in secret. But the trio saw it as an elegant solution to the problem they were trying to solve safeguarding against any one minister having absolute power. Porter advised that it could be done through an administrative instrument and didn't need appointment by the Governor-General, and with no constitutional barrier to having two ministers appointed to administer the same portfolio. I trust you, mate, Morrison told Hunt, but I'm swearing myself in as health minister too. Which really means, I don't trust you. I don't trust you. Yeah, exactly. Such a... Language warning in this episode, dear listener. He's such a cunt. It would also be useful if one of them caught COVID and became incapacitated. Hunt not only accepted the measure, but welcomed it. <laughs> Considering the economic Maybe. measures the government was taking and the significant fiscal implications and debt that was being incurred, Morrison also swore himself in as finance minister alongside Matthias Cormann, who apparently, by the way, dear listener, had no idea this happened until he read about it in the paper just the other day. Mm. He wanted to ensure that there were two people who had their hands on the purse strings. So that's so if he didn't 
no, that meant that he wasn't doing sign-off for these things. It meant that he also had equivalent access. So that was less control, not more control. Who who had... So if two people were finance minister and either of them could sign off on purchases, not it wasn't both of them had to. It wasn't an and, it was an or. Yep. Which meant that there was less control, not more control over the purse strings. Without, you know, ministers appointed, not knowing Scott Morrison is also appointed as a minister, and they could be making Mm -hmm. completely contradictory decisions about a matter. And, in fact, that is what happened, as we will find out about these gas fields. And, and the question is, so who wins if they're both ministers exactly. they the same rank? Exactly. It's a recipe for just disaster. In case I forget, you know, Morrison's obviously going to leave Parliament at some stage. He's scratching around looking for some corporate appointment somewhere. Nobody in the corporate world is going to touch him with a barge pole. Because he's useless. And now after this, there's there's no way he's getting a job on a board anywhere except Hillsong. He's going to end up a preacher. That's his only avenue left to him is is running some... He was at Margaret Court's church, wasn't he? That's where he'll end up as a religious preacher because nobody else will touch him. If you're in the chat room, say hello. Bronwyn's there. Landon Hardbottom is there. Hi, Landon. What's his background before... Parliament, does he actually have any skills? Scott Morrison. Oh, of course he was. Tourism. Tourism, yes. Got sacked from that. Mm. Guy's got no skills at all. Oh, so anyway, that's how it kicked off. I reckon reckon he couldn't stand Greg Hunt having more power than him. That's where it all started. And once he got down that road like a crack addict, he couldn't help himself and kept going back for more hits. So there's a guy called... Let me go back to the beginning of my notes now. I mean, Twitter's got some great stuff happening there. I'm really enjoying it, some funny stuff. There was a tweet from Scott Morrison back on the 19th of August. Not sure what year that was. Must have been... Anyway, it said, If Labor wins, we won't know who is running the country, let alone who is Finance, Defence or Foreign Affairs Minister. Mm-hmm. We're at the point where this coalition government, nobody knew who was various ministers. Oh, dear. Okay, Don's hit the chat room. Good on you and Chris as well. There's a guy called Ryan Little, former chief of staff, comms director to Labor leader, deputy prime and to a deputy prime minister, treasurer, and he's a partner at Principal Advisory. He's well connected in the Labor Party and he says, word from Furious Libs tonight is that there will be a lot more coming out on Morrison in the coming days. Apparently, he made a gobsmacking number of decisions across portfolios he was sworn into. Captain's cool. That'll be interesting, because we really only know of one decision so far, which was to do with the gas fields that we'll talk about. But he's sort of claiming at this point that he didn't really do much. So it'll be interesting to see... He didn't do much as Prime Minister either. No, he didn't. He didn't hold a hose. Yeah. Ah. A coup d'etat, Joe. Mm-hmm. French for stroke of state, also known as coup or overthrow, is a seizure and removal of a government and its powers. Typically, 
It's an illegal seizure of power by a political faction, rebel group, military or a dictator. Many scholars consider a coup successful when the usurpers seize and hold power for at least seven days. Well, he held power for longer than that, didn't he? It's getting perilously close. But, you know, it's, it's a seizure and removal of a government and its powers. Well, I guess it's just some of the powers of a government. This is a little little mini coup d'etat by a dictator here who's grabbed power illegally. Well, is it illegal? The Governor-General appointed him corruptly. It's Yeah, there's questions about that, isn't there? Yeah. As to why the GG was buying into it. Yeah. Okay, moving on my notes here. I've got, so he was worried about Hunt having absolute power and he was wanting to put in checks and balances. But absolute power isn't a problem. So as Paul Bongiorno said, he could have withdrawn Greg Hunt's commission at any time. Like if Hunt went Mm -hmm. crazy with whatever decision he was making, he could have just said, you're sacked. Stop making decisions right now and I'm going to replace you. So, you, you know, if you didn't like what he was doing, you could have just sacked him as health minister. You didn't need to appoint yourself as, as an additional health minister. I've already said in terms of urgency, it wouldn't take long to appoint a replacement. You could literally do it within a couple of hours if you wanted to. What he should have done was have a series of assistant ministers ready, willing and able, fully briefed, attending all of the relevant meetings and told to keep their phone on at night in case the main minister got sick. You know, spreading the risk by appointing himself as the alternative on these five different ministries wasn't spreading the risk, it was concentrating the risk. Plan B was all around Scott Morrison. That's not spreading the risk. And uh, here's the other thing, Joe. I don't think anybody's mentioned it, so I should do a tweet about this and hope it goes viral. But, you know, the idea is that Morrison could step in if one of the ministers got sick. That's the idea. Mm -hmm. Morrison couldn't remember if he's a minister or not. Okay. Because he's quoted in the the radio when the, the radio interviewer today said, you know, mentioned the three portfolios that he took on and said to him, are there any other, it was Ben Fordham, are there any other portfolios you assumed? And he said, not to my recollection, Ben. So (laughs) this guy couldn't remember if he was a minister in a portfolio. So you could have had a position. Couldn't remember or (laughs) couldn't remember. You could theoretically have had a situation where Home Affairs Minister got sick with COVID. And they all sat there going, fuck, if only we'd appointed somebody else as a minister and Morrison would be there, yeah, if only we had, forgetting that he'd appointed himself because he can't remember the portfolios that he was appointed under. It was... Well, he can't remember or he doesn't want to admit to. But this is the argument. You're saying that you were spreading the risk that you had. This was your plan B and you and your own admission couldn't even remember if you'd been appointed to a portfolio or not. How, how, how useless would that be? You could have had a guy there appointed 
and he wouldn't even remember. <sighs> Here's the interesting one, Joe. Mm. I mean, all of this hinges on the Governor-General appointing somebody. Yes. Do we have a Deputy Governor-General? We have the Queen. Mm-hmm. That's what I was thinking so as well. She she can replace the Governor General whenever, can't she? What if the Queen was sick and she's you know what one of the risks in this, Joe, it seemed to me, was it's all reliant to part of this process is you need the Governor General to be fit and healthy to to appoint what somebody. What are the odds of the Queen <laughs> and the Governor General being sick at the same time? Well, what are the odds on Scott Morrison appointing himself to five ministries? But I looked it up, Joe, according to Wikipedia anyway, and this seemed quite reasonable because mm-hmm. I Googled, do we have a Deputy Governor-General? wasn't sure what the process was. And uh, the Governor-General is formally appointed by the mo- monarch of Australia in terms of letters patent issued by the monarch at some time during the reign and countersigned by the then Prime Minister. When a new Governor-General is to be appointed, the current Prime Minister recommends a name to the monarch who by convention accepts that recommendation. So if you were to replace the Governor-General because you're incapacitated, it would require mm-hmm. the Prime Minister to recommend to the Queen who would then appoint the Governor-General to replace them. A vacancy occurs on the resignation, death or incapacity of the Governor-General. A temporary vacancy occurs when the Governor-General is overseas on official business representing Australia. A temporary vacancy also occurred in 2003 when Peter Hollingworth stood aside. Now... Section 4 of the Constitution allows the Queen to appoint an administrator to carry out the role of Governor-General when there is a vacancy. By convention, the longest-serving state governor holds a dormant commission, allowing an assumption of office to commence whenever a vacancy occurs. In 1975, Labor Prime Minister Gough Whitlam advised the Queen that Sir Colin Hanna, then Governor of Queensland, should have his dormant commission revoked for having made public political statements. So there you go. The deputy is effectively the longest-serving state governor at the time. So, so the governor-general... fair enough. Yeah, does sound fair enough. Had the governor-general become incapacitated, hopefully somebody had figured out who the longest-serving state governor was and told him or her, keep the phone by your bed in case we need you urgently. There we go. What are they saying in the chat room? You guys are going off in there. So, Greg Blackshaw, what's the chances of a 96-year-old woman being sick? And Don Toovey. And Don Toovey. Well, may we say, God save the Queen. Okay. All right. So, let's move on to the resources portfolio. So, one of the portfolios that Morrison secretly swore himself into included the resources portfolio. Okay, so at a stretch, you might say, needed emergency powers at hand for health. Mm -hmm. And another stretch, you could say, well, there's a lot of money involved. Need emergency powers at hand, finance. But resources? Got to make some quick decisions on mines because of the COVID crisis? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, that cold's not going to sell itself offshore. This one occurred a bit late. I think this was the last one that he took on. So the the other minister, 
Keith Pitt. Was it Keith Pitt? It's Pitt. I'm just not sure of his first name here. Pitt just like, glint in his father's eye. Yeah. Pitt has told colleagues he was kept in the dark and shocked to learn of the Prime Minister's secret powers during discussions with him in his office in late 2021 over a controversial oil and gas project. So what happened, dear listener, is off an offshore oil and gas project off of Newcastle, Pitt, who's a national and the resources minister, wanted to approve it. And Morrison was worried about losing seats to green policy-loving people in the area. So he actually wanted to stop the project. And so... It wasn't green-loving people, it was NIMBYs. Yeah, well, that... Good point, Joe. Thank you for that. So, so essentially, Pitt wanted to move with, ahead with the proposals, with the approvals. Morrison did not. And it was during this process when he was presented with a range of options that the then Prime Minister revealed to Mr Pitt that he, Morrison, was secretly sworn in as the Minister and could make the decision himself. Uh, so... <laughs> basically told Pitt, I don't care what you think, I'm the minister as well. F off. Mm -hmm. So in June, yeah, so obviously the mining company, I think it's BPH Energy, in June they launched a federal court challenge to that decision. And I bet their lawyers are just scratching their heads now because having found out, like they were just wanting to review the decision as being a bad decision under judicial review, and now they've found out all mm -hmm. this stuff, it's going to be a very, very interesting case where you've got one minister on the record as wanting to approve the project and another minister on the record not wanting, wanting to, to knock it back. Very interesting case that's going to be. Well, I mean, we know that Scott's coal fondler-in-chief, so I'm surprised yeah. he was turning down yeah. natural well, resources. Because he could see some votes in that particular area. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, boy. In the chat room, they're talking about an ICAC and how this proves the need for that, that's for sure. What are, what are politicians saying about this? Albanese said that while he was running a shadow cabinet, Morrison was running a shadow government, and he described Morrison's actions as tin pot activity that we would ridicule if it was in a third world country. Nash We're ridiculing it anyway. <laughs> Nationals leader David Littleproud said he didn't know of the former Prime Minister's actions, despite him being a minister in the Morrison government. This is pretty ordinary as far as I'm concerned, Mr Littleproud said. If you have a cabinet government, you trust your cabinet. Unless you've got a Messiah complex. Mm -hmm. Joyce only learned... Well, don't forget, Jesus intervened and made him Prime Minister. Yeah, yes, Lord if works you believe in, that, yeah. maybe you believe that you are fit to do whatever you like. Yeah, if you believe that, I've got a bridge to sell you or I've got a ministerial portfolio for you to sign up for. Joyce didn't know about it until Pitt found out. It's a, uh, Joyce says, I don't believe in a presidential form of government. If you don't like cabinet ministers, there's a simple solution, you sack them. I mean, this is a very good point. It, it's this move towards a presidential style of, of government, which is not how we work. No. It's a cabinet form, and it relies on 
the members of Parliament voting for their Prime Minister and and then the Cabinet running the show. Mm. Talking of voting for the Prime Minister, Mm. I found out the 1922 committee in the UK Mm. is all of the backbenchers in the Conservative Party. And what was the 1922 committee again? So they vote on who is going to become the next Prime Minister. So who's the leader of the party? Oh, okay, in that rundown thing that we were talking about. And it was only backbenchers, not ministers? only backbenchers, not ministers. Ah, that's interesting. Mm. Okay, Karen Andrews, former Home Affairs Minister, she's calling on Scott Morrison to resign. She said, I had absolutely no knowledge and was not told by the PM the Prime Minister's office, nor the Department Secretary. This undermines the integrity of government. Man, you'd be pissed. I mean, it's not easy to to scramble your way up in to become a Minister of Government and to find out that this asshole has silently, secretly shuffled his way in to be a co-minister. You would be so angry. I would be. The ABC understands that Home Affairs Secretary Mike Pizzullo did not know Morrison had been sworn in as Minister for Home Affairs. And the highest level of Australia's intelligence agencies were also not aware. According to the Chaser... Home Affairs is the most powerful person, isn't he? It's They. It's the most powerful position. It's got... Plenty of power in there. The Chaser says Barnaby Joyce reveals he also secretly took up home affairs. Boom, boom. Mm Mm-hmm. Josh Frydenberg, only discovered today that Scott Morrison had secretly assumed the Treasury portfolio and is said to be, quote, deeply disappointed, end quote. Yeah. Yes, but he was so pissed he didn't know what was going on anyway. Yeah. Allegedly. Was he a big drinker, was he? No, just... (laughs) The Governor-General, Joe, Mm. lots of people saying there's some fault here by the Governor-General, and I'm interested in the chat room opinion on this one. So the Governor-General's basically run the line that, as a Governor-General, I do what I'm told, and I did what I was told to do. Thank you very much. And no, you don't do what you're told. Well, what do you think the Governor-General should have done? At the very least made it public. Mm, but wouldn't that risk having an activist Governor-General? Like, isn't this Governor-General supposed to be more or less a public servant like all the other public servants who somehow knew what was going on, who just remained quiet? No, he, he's he's the cutout. Right. He's He's the the pin that stops it becoming a dictatorship. Mm. He's the reset switch. He's just a ceremonial figure, Joe. His job job is to do what he's told by the Prime Minister. He doesn't have authority. He's the reset switch in case we have an authoritarian government. Oh, I don't think he is. He he should have – maybe he should have kicked it up to Lizzie. Mm Mm-hmm. Here's what see I, what she says. I think personally, this is my current position. I might change my mind on this. John in the chat room says, what's the point of a GG if he can't say no? Well, mm-hmm. I think he could say no. I, if, if 
I think if I was Governor General, what he should have done is said, I'm not doing that, particularly when he found out after the first one that wasn't publicised. Like maybe he didn't know on the first one that it was going to remain secret, for example. So, But I don't think it's his role to publicise it. I think he should have resigned and then when everybody said, why are you resigning, he should have said, I was asked to do something that I am unwilling to do and you need to ask Scott Morrison what that was. And that's how it could come out. So I think that would be the way he should do it because I don't think we want an activist Governor-General. It's not good. It's caused us a problem once before and... It should be just purely ceremonial. So, yeah, John says... I, I, I think it's it's more than ceremonial. I think mm. it's supposed to be so that we don't get a power grab from any prime minister who wants to make themselves dictator for life. But if but the whole point of Governor-General is, does the prime minister have the confidence of the House? Then, yes, do whatever the prime minister says to do. And if you don't want to do it then just resign. Like, and that's Did what he, he should, have the confidence but, for the House on that? Well, he was the Prime Minister. Would, would he have the confidence of the House if the House knew that he was trying to double dip? Yeah, well, while he was Prime Minister, the Governor-General, I think, just has to... So, so if he decides to grant himself power of yeah, President for life, mm-hmm. if he's oh. got the confidence of the Parliament, the Governor-General should just grant it to him? No, the Governor-General should say... I resign, I'm not doing it, find somebody else and then say to the press, I've resigned and you need to ask him why. And 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 that's how it should be handled, I think. So, yes, the Governor-General can do something. All he can do is resign if something is not right. I don't think he should get involved in... And, and by resigning, that just... Well, passes the can down to the most senior well, well, for start, governor, doesn't it? It stops it. Say, for example, he'd resigned in this case. Say he'd said mm-hmm. to Morrison, no, I'm not going to do this, I resign. Then people would have said, why are you resigning? And he would have said, ask Scott Morrison why. If he won't tell you, I'll tell you, but you ask him first. And Morrison would have had to say, it's because I wanted to secretly appoint myself as, as an extra so, minister. And people would have said, what the fuck? And... Or hell would have broken loose. Like, and okay, the governor general's out of a job, but that's 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 all your power yeah. is, I think. Yeah. All right. Well, you disagree on something, Joe? There we go. Yeah, yeah. So I still think he should resign now in disgrace because he didn't resign back then, as a matter of principle. Hey, Scott. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what are the Twitterati saying? Things like. So you're telling me we had a botched vaccine rollout and no rats, despite apparently having two health ministers? We had two health ministers, Joe, and not one of them could get on the phone to Pfizer and organise stuff. You know, remember, no, I know. Remember when I was saying, why didn't somebody call us? Kevin Rudd had to call for us. That's uh, who it was. I knew somebody had called. Hmm. <sighs> yeah, but the reason they hadn't called Pfizer was because that would admit they made a mistake in the first place. Yeah. Yep. It's, I still want to know what happened about the manufacturing, the mRNA manufacturing. 
over here. Why that didn't happen? I think we're doing it now, aren't we? Well, ha- ha- in Victoria, are we? Yeah, I think I saw That's something. The I saw something just the other day that Victoria has now got some laboratory up and running, okay. making that vaccine now. Because I, I that yeah, it wouldn't have saved us back then, but it would save us for future pandemics. Mm. Someone in Twitter said everyone's down on Scamo, but his empathy coach did tell him to try putting himself in another person's place. Mm-hmm. Uh, Did he feel more empathy for his peers then? I don't know. What else we got here? Journalists. What did they know? What did they hold back prior to the election? And there doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence of journalists knowing what was going on, except the author of this book. I mean, the book came out on Tuesday today. Mm-hmm. I mean, the manuscript must have been typed and ready months ago in order for it to be printed and published. Like, he... Unless this was a last-minute update, yes. He almost certainly had to know prior to the election and sat on it until his book came out. be interesting to know what other journalists might have known about this if any of them sat on the information. Hmm. I quite like the uh, pretty clear now the real reason that John Barillaro withdrew from the New York Trade Commissioner role last month yeah. was because he discovered Scott Morrison was already in the role. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's another thing, Barillaro. We might get onto that as well. Kieran Gilbert asked the former Prime Minister Scott Morrison whether he wished to respond to today's revelations. This was yesterday, I think. And Morrison said, No, haven't seen what he has said. Since leaving the job, I haven't engaged in any day-to-day politics, says the man representing the seat He's of electorate. Cook. Yes. Hasn't engaged in any day-to-day politics. Who's Bridget McKenzie? The guy who wrote the book is a partner of Bridget McKenzie. Is she one of the politicians? Oh, I recognise the name, but... Mm. It's hard to keep track of them. Mm. Peter says... Senator, the Honourable Bridget McKenzie. Right. Member of the Nationals. There we go. Senator for Victoria since 2011. According to... 2010. According to Dr Sheepperson on Twitter, Benson is a partner of Bridget McKenzie. Right. So, depending on what you're reading, whether it's Twitter, The Guardian, The ABC, or The Iron Fist Velvet Glove... Chat room. RSS feed. <laughs> and RSS feed. Most of what you would be reading would be complete outrage at what has happened. And you would think to yourself, well, clearly everybody despises what has happened. Everyone, the average Australian is no doubt appalled by this action. And we all think the same, don't we? And dear listener, for my sins, as you know, Using the money provided by the patrons, I subscribed to the Courier Mail and the Australian. And so I looked at some of the key articles regarding this issue and scrolled all the way to the comments section at the bottom where the fellow subscribers... You're a masochist, aren't you? <laughs> I am. My fellow subscribers made their comments. And it's quite frightening, dear listener. I mean, we look at America... If you, and we're going to talk about Trump and the 
latest fiasco there with the confidential classified documents that he kept in a storeroom at the bottom of a golf club. And we marvel at how the Trump supporters go, nothing to see here. Everybody did it. Obama did it. They've all done it. What about Hillary's emails? That's nothing. Nothing to see here. There's a lot of what what aboutisms, yes. Indeed. A lot of what aboutisms. And we think to ourselves smugly, crazy Americans, at least we're not like that. Well, there was one of the articles in the Courier Mail. Headline was, Scott Morrison reacts to secret portfolio appointments. Anthony Albanese seeks legal advice. And I have to say that the articles and editorials in both the Courier Mail and the Australian have been pretty neutral to almost criticising Morrison. So this is not a case where the Courier Mail or the Australian's sort of reporters and editorials have really come out in favour of Morrison. I'd say they really reported the facts and if there's been a commentary, it's kind of been slightly negative on Morrison, saying, what the hell? So... So that's from the the writers and the and the editorial. But in the comment section, so in response to that article, at the time I looked at it, there were eight hundred and forty five comments, and you're able to sort them in terms of you know most recent, or you can sort it by the most liked. So I sorted these comments from the most liked to the least liked, and I'm going to read some of them to you because if I had to read them. Then you're going to have to listen to some of it. Actually, before I go on, Broman says, yes, it's interesting that no one really wants to defend Morrison. Even the current Libs efforts have been pretty half-hearted. And it seems that the difference between America and Australia is that Trump's been able to infiltrate the Republican Party with so many of his people that in order to maintain their position in the Republican Party they've had to toe a Trump line and to get their pre-selections, they've had to to toe a, a Trump line. And I don't think the same dynamic is working here in the Liberal Party. I don't think people are looking at it going, in order to keep my position in the Liberal Party, I need to be somehow pandering to a Morrison faction. So I think that's the difference there in terms of the politicians and the players. But in terms of the general Joe public who are my fellow subscribers, here's some of the comments. More concerned about Morrison taking on too much responsibility than Albo, who takes responsibility for nothing. 122 likes. Hey, Albo, stop worrying about the last government and tell me where my $275 power bill cut is. You said you were going to reduce my power cost by $275 per year, but now they're going through the roof. Five exclamation marks. Don't tell me you've been telling porkies again. 119 likes for that comment. What would a communist like Albanese know about the Westminster system? 116 likes for that. Albo, I thought you were on holidays. Please get back to delivery your promises and stop pandering to the Greens and unions. We are in for a torrid time. 105 likes. If Albo ever turned up... I'm not up- sure that torrid is the word that they're <laughs> looking for. If Albo ever turned up to work and read the briefs, he might have noted that there was a pandemic on in the last two years of ScoMo's reign and foreseeable that a key minister could be incapacitated due to COVID-19, so needed someone to step in. Quite right. 
not to advertise the fact, as unnecessary fear in difficult times. The ALP, on the other hand, lead by instilling unnecessary fear, as that way you can control people. Absolute rubbish. And could these talk a big game, delivered donut clowns, actually do the job they were elected to do, instead of continual childish whining and nasty pettiness? It's the Biden script yet again. And how has that worked out for him? Absolute joke that this is even talked, but deflects from the fact the herald, heralded plan ALP is still in the design shop. 102 likes for that. I'll keep going. These are good. Poor old Albo only worries about the Westminster system of government when it involves the Liberals' nationals, yet he is okay with the blatant dismantling of the Westminster system in Victoria. 98 likes. Albo, we are more worried about putting food on the table, paying rent and mortgages, getting petrol to do the family thing, so just get on with it, please. 97 likes. Meanwhile, in Victoria, one bloke has been personally running every portfolio very badly, and crickets chirp in media land. 95 likes. How accurate is that allegation? I don't think it's correct at all. Facts have nothing to do with the comment section yeah, of News Corp. obviously. Mastheads. Not only was he doing his job, but he was on standby to do others. Meanwhile, his replacement is totally lost and is either out of Australia or on holiday. 94 likes. There's a lot of comments about holidays here. A lot of people going banging on about Albanese being on holidays and electricity. Is Elbow actually back in the country for a change? How long has that been now? Three months or so? Any chance we could get some movement on this plan or are we going to get more of the standard labour, distract, divert and deny? 93 likes. So that was the Kirim. In The Australian, the story was the headline, Morrison's Secret Moves. I'm swearing myself in as Health Minister too. And again, I did the same thing. And this was the most liked comment. Sound strategy for extraordinary times. I am so grateful that Scott Morrison was PM during this time. 120 likes. Aren't you so grateful? Thank you, PM Morrison. Australia was one of the best-performing countries during the COVID crisis. I will never forget the image of him walking away after declaring Australia had shut its borders, looking like he had the weight of every Australian life on his shoulder. Labor calling his decision a racist one. This decision saved many Australian lives. I thought he didn't. I thought it was the states that closed the borders. It's like creative writing exercises. Mm. It's, it's a parallel reality that these people live in. It is. I challenge you in the chat room to write a pro-Morrison piece. Put put satire in it so that we know it's not with you. But can you match the can you match the well, feeling of these people? It, it's Poe's law, isn't it? <laughs> What's Poe's law again? Poe's law is there's nothing you can satirise about a creationist that a creationist hasn't said for real. There you go. There's nothing you couldn't satirise about a Morrison supporter that hasn't been said. That a Morrison supporter hasn't actually said, yes. (laughs) Are we okay to keep going with this? Because this is instructive, dear listener. Like, it's a huge segment of our population that is not only saying, nah, but is also saying nothing wrong with it, nothing to see here. 
Not only nothing wrong with it, he mm. did right. Mm. There were a number of comments which which talked about if they were not supportive of Morrison, they were actually critical of the lockdown itself. So here's one, for example. The parallels that are continually drawn with the Spanish flu and the response of that time when COVID was never as dangerous nor as untreatable are deeply concerning. It appears that it was basically panic stations from very early in the pandemic and that explains so much of the overreaction and abuses of power at state and federal level. Cannot see myself reading the book after reading this article. The hubris of our so-called leaders is depressing and their inability to consider the consequences of the decision they make even more of a worry. So it was really, rather than criticising Morrison specifically, was kind of like, well, they all just overreacted to this pandemic and this is just a sign of that overreaction. What else have I got here? I might skip through a few because I can feel your pain. What have... It's only as bad as a cold, remember? Yeah. Uh, Chris says, this is Chris's one. He's, he could be a contributor to The Australian. He, in the chat room, he says, Morrison, he turned up. He took what he could, and we thank him for opening up the cracks. Let's see here. Complaining about health, uh, the health medical or chief health officers. Here's one. Sensationalist headline. Sensible and prudent steps actually described. Morrison was a very good PM in this crisis. 58 likes. The biggest mistake Scott Morrison made was to give these unelected so-called health experts so much power. 46 likes. And this one, the last one. If this had been Albanese, he would have taken six months off due to the effort required even to think of preparing a plan to do something. Remember, he said the PM only had two responsibilities. There we go. Did he? Yeah. Yeah. The vaccine and the lockdown or something, I think, is what Albanese said. He had two jobs to do and he failed at both. Look, there you go. I think that is frightening but not surprising. And there are Morrison supporters out there in the public. Seems that his his support in the parliament on the conservative side is not really there. It seems like even the commentariat on Sky News and in the Murdoch press are not really going to go into bat for him. Yeah, but I bet you the Hillsong crowd. Yes, that's, that's about it. That's all he's got left. His options of appearing on a board somewhere surely have completely sunk. So, all right. I don't know if you wanted somebody who didn't actually do anything but was a conduit into the corridors of power. Mm, but but he shafted so many people in there. Yeah. You wouldn't think he could actually deliver you any lobbying effectively because... People might do the opposite if Scott Morrison asked for something, I would have thought, even amongst his former colleagues. He's burnt so many bridges. So it's it's hard to imagine him being on any sort of board. All I can see is is in a church as a preacher. That's all he's got left. He'll probably stay in the job. He probably won't resign because he wants the money. What else is he going to do? Yeah, when does he get his pension? Has he been in for long enough? Apparently, though, his pension as former PM, is not nearly as good as some of the previous ones because his entry into the parliament was quite late. So right. uh, it's not quite as lucrative as some of the other ones. John says he's, he bets he's going to resign. I don't know. And Bronwyn's happy that my comment reading is over. Right. Yeah. Morrison's going to say, and I think he has come out, there was something he put on t- 
and released a statement on Twitter, which basically was saying it was extraordinary times, we had to do extraordinary things, and I did it for my people and leave me alone, which ignores all the things that we've already said about it was a, even if your purpose was to spread risk, there's no need to do it in secret and appointing yourself isn't spreading the risk, it's concentrating plan B on one person. And it's just a, a major erosion in our democracy. Like when people talk about constitutional crisis, Joe, and they talk about 1975 and Whitlam, we haven't reached 1975 levels in terms of crisis to our democracy. But it's getting close as, this, as, as one of the key moments in our political history, I would have thought. Was that really a constitutional crisis? 75 or this? Yeah, I mean, he, he, he sacked the government and went to a general election. Right. So he returned, he returned the power to the people. Yes. Whereas this was Scott Morrison grabbing the power for himself. Okay, so you reckon this I, is I bigger than 1975, the, is that what you're saying? I, I think this is the exact opposite of 1975. Yeah, well, which is bigger though? You're a, you're a surprising advocate for activist governor generals. It's, it's a good joke. I hadn't picked you for this. So. Yeah, I, I, that's the only value I see is stopping dictatorship grabs. Hmm. If you look at the rise of Hitler to power, he was elected as prime minister, effectively, uh, of Germany, and then he seized power from there. Mm. And so the question is, what's to stop that happening over here? Yeah. And and if we have a governor general who happily goes along with the prime minister because he has the confidence of parliament mm. and just grants him whatever he wants. Well, um, well, he shouldn't. Like, that's my point, though. I'm not saying he should. He should just resign so that we all find out about it. But I don't think he should act. You, you don't think he positively should go and assume no, powers. You're, you're mis, misbehaving, right? Mm. Sack you all. No. Let's call a general election. No. It's interesting. Some of this stuff is to do with convention. Like, I don't think the Constitution refers to a prime minister at all, for example. So, probably not. Yeah. So, you know, our laws in this sort of part of the legal territory are a mixture of the constitution and also conventions. So, you know... And we've seen what happens with Trump with conventions. Yes. It used to be that gentlemen would respect conventions, but respect for conventions has just disappeared. So, you know, Section 64, which is the uh, section of the constitution where, you know, the... uh, the Governor-General sort of appoints people to act in the executive, you know, doesn't say anything about, well, of course, we should tell people when we do that by publicising it. You know, it's just a convention that you don't do this in secret. And uh, it'll be interesting to see whether this has any effect on the Republican sort of debate. People will be talking about the role of the Governor-General in this and what would the role be of the president in a republic? And I, I did notice the comments were saying that effectively an ICAC could act as the oversight body. Mm. And therefore, if there was a genuine concern 
Yeah. Even if the, the Governor General's a figurehead, he could take that to ICAC. Yeah. Refer to ICAC. Resign and refer to, I- to ICAC would be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That would be a solution. Yeah. So, anyway, maybe when we draft an amendment to the Constitution, when we become a republic at some point, there will be an extra line in there that mightn't have been considered before where they say, by the way, when appointing ministers, it has to be publicised. And perhaps well, there wonder, can only be one minister. You wonder how many conventions actually need to be yeah. written down mm. and ratified. Mm. Yeah. Like turning over your tax returns. Yes. You, you heard, by the way. He lost that part of the battle mm-hmm. where, at this point, the latest court decision was forcing him to... He has to hand them over. Yeah. Yep. I don't know what appeals he has from that point. Well, there is that. Who knows? In the chat room, Roman says, Ree Morrison's pension, you'll be pleased to hear that he's not eligible for the older, more generous scheme. He can only get the standard accumulation scheme that was implemented for pollies elected after 2004. Yep. John says maybe Hillsong CFO in Scotty's future. Yeah, and that would be a good thing if you got a job in Hillsong. It would help it crash even quicker. Actually, we've got something about Hillsong. Let's let's talk about Hillsong. Oh, the whistleblower. Mm. This is very interesting. This is from Crikey. Mm. If you're not subscribed to Crikey, dear listener, excellent publication, highly recommended. It's not that expensive. Natalie Moses was employed at Hillsong from March 2020 to mid-June this year. In that time, she worked at the very heart of the Hillsong enterprise, the getting of money. Moses was involved in raising donation revenues, increasing donor engagement, making grant applications and managing income reporting. Critically, she had access to board papers, minutes of meetings and resolutions for several Hillsong entities, stretching back around 10 years. Documents, documents, documents. By the time her employment was suspended and her email access was cut, Moses had downloaded some 40,000 confidential files, according to federal court records. By the end of June, Hillsong's most sensitive secrets had passed into enemy hands. Crikey does not know Natalie Moses, but those who do tell us this. She is incredibly smart, highly experienced, very intelligent and analytical and 100% ethical. Which makes you wonder... What was she doing there in why the first Hillsong- place? Exactly. <laughs> but boy, if we could have planted somebody in Hillsong, it sounds like the perfect person. Mm-hmm. She was probably the only person who was ever going to be able to work it all out and speak up because she's the only staff member who has ever worked in depth across both the finance and governance areas. This would have been necessary to pull together all the pieces of the sources tell us she has substantial experience in the charity and corporate sectors and appears to have quickly identified when something was not right. So she was sacked and she is going to court over sort of a whistleblower protection sort of action. Wrongful dismissal? Yeah, something like that. But I think some sort of whistleblower protection type of thing as well. Mm-hmm. So she, in her statement of claim, outlines irregularities in the transfer of funds from Hillsong's Australian entities. And it started with concern about $10,000 that was to be passed to people seeking to establish a Hillsong church in Romania. Moses warned her boss that overseas transfers of this ilk could not happen under legislation governing not-for-profits in Australia. 
The funds are eventually paid via a US-based Hillsong entity, thereby avoiding Australian regulations. Well, this uh, sounds like chaplains in schools. Uh, it's ruled illegal, so you just send it to the States yes, instead. Yes, find a different way of moving the money. Hmm. From there, Moses, according to the Statement of Claim, briefed Hillsong directors on the need for better compliance of Hillsong's 18 not-for-profit entities in Australia. And it goes on to say they've got lots of businesses in US jurisdictions like Texas and Virginia, where there's very little demand for transparency. Moses identified a lot of risks with mingling money from different pots, and she warned that it might be fraudulent to offer tax deductions on donations to building a Hillsong facility at Festival Hall, and she warned that it was unethical and illegal for the Hillsong board to use tax-deductible donations to cover the church's $9 million deficit. How did they end up with a $9 million deficit when they get so much money? Either by building new infrastructure hmm. or, or it was some um, loaned out for various schemes. Yeah, given away to cronies. Now, so she's claiming this treatment as a whistleblower. She painted a picture of favouritism and cronyism. cronyism. She was alleges in her statement of claim that as she revealed her findings to Hillsong's senior ranks, she was told to, quote, come up with a story, end quote, that would be acceptable to the ACNC. So what now... She, in her statement, lays direct responsibility at the door of Hillsong's directors, which is about uh, Brian Houston and 10 others. And in summary, Hillsong got some problems because somebody essentially so deep in the organisation with so much knowledge downloaded 40,000 documents. Australian charities and something or other, not-for-profits, I think. ACNC. ACNC. It's probably at the beginning of this article, but I might never. It's the, the charities are regulated. By, yeah, um, I think that's anyway. what it, yep. One of the regulators. What else we got here? Yep. That's the main thing. So Hillsong in a lot of trouble, a lot of documents, somebody who knows what's going on intimately, who's really smart and really pissed at Hillsong. It sounds like a re- recipe for disaster for Hillsong. Hopefully those documents are in the hands of ATO. Hmm. I would think so, hopefully. Right. What are we up to in time-wise? And, and possibly AFP if there's mm. a, illegal activities. All sorts of different groups. Although I, I, somehow a, a AFP, if they're deeply in bed with the Liberal Party, I wouldn't be surprised that they're also deeply infiltrated with mm. evangelicals. Mm. I don't know. Don't know either. All right. Just before we get on to Trump, if you work for Amazon, did you know that after every hour of work at Amazon, the computer taunts you? Uh, it comes up with a thing on the screen for a thirty-second break, and it tells you to have a mind moment of positive affirmation for thirty seconds every hour when you're working at Amazon. Repeat these phrases during each. Expansion of the circle. Even in chaos. Maybe they could use it for a toilet break instead. Yeah, well, you do this while you have your bottle there. No, these are for people working at a computer at Amazon. Repeat these phrases during each expansion of the circle. Even in chaos, I can feel peaceful. I notice the good. While socially distant, I am emotionally close. 
And so Amazon recommends repeating those phrases as a 30-second timer counts down on your screen and then back to work. That's good. Joe, Trump and the documents. So, dear listener, extraordinary events in America. I don't know what you're talking about. Mm, where the former he, president. He was in the right. Yeah. FBI basically raided Mar-a-Lago and took a whole heap of boxes, which... Totally unfounded. Because, uh, you know, yeah, his lawyers had handed over everything they'd asked for. Yes. So it turns out that he took a whole bunch of documents and the National Archives knew the documents were missing and said, hey, you took a whole bunch of documents, hand them back. You can't keep those. Like, these documents belong to the people, not you. And this was due to laws passed following Nixon, I believe. It was around then. Yeah. Um, basically, the Presidential Records Act says anything that the president does, says, or signs during his time in office belong to the people to go into an archive so that whenever it's declassified, people can go through and see how a president acted during his time. Yeah. So they knew things were missing and said to him, hey, cough up the stuff that's missing. And so apparently they sent some stuff back and they were looking through it and they were going like, there's some classified stuff here. And also I think it was really obvious that there was some things missing. Like mm-hmm. I think – now I was listening to opening arguments on this if you want the full details. I think almost to the extent where maybe they received boxes labelled one, two, three – six, seven, nine, ten, <laughs> and they were able to say, well, where are boxes four, five, and eight? <laughs> so they managed to go to a judge and convince a judge that there were further documents which were classified documents. An activist judge. Yes. Come on. And seemingly relating to nuclear secrets as well, which really got people worried. And and so then they and they basically said to him, you need to send us these documents. And they basically said, oh, we've sent you everything. And they knew that they hadn't. So they gave him every opportunity to produce the documents. And they said, well, just do it quietly. We will we'll come there with plain clothes. We'll do it during hours and in ways that people won't know that the FBI is doing this so that to save you embarrassment and he just wouldn't agree so he then just they just pulled the plug and or pulled the pin and, and got a, a subpoena or whatever you call it to to enter the warrant. premises yeah a warrant and to, and to do it so took away all these documents and you know people fought- and, and again it was undercover till i think he went on the record yeah and, and, yeah, I know he said that they took his passport, but there's nothing in the – because there's a list of documents that were taken. Yes. It's gen- yeah, it's generic, but yeah. not so generic that a passport would be in there and not written down. Yeah. One so of the documents was, possibly- was information about the French president, Macron. So that was just documents relating to Emmanuel Macron was kind of what it was. So that's interesting. Mm-hmm. So anyway, they've raided that and they're going to look at it and people have said, well, well, he said he declassified everything, therefore he didn't have classified documents and 
Apparently, it doesn't matter. These are documents of a nature that even if you say they are declassified, which the argument isn't going to work anyway, but even if you were to accept that, that they were declassified, they still have to be stored correctly. And he literally had them in just a storeroom in one of the basement areas of the Mar-a-Lago Golf Resort complex he lives in. Like, the guy doesn't live in a regular home. He lives in a private golf club. There's all sorts of servants and people. So Mar-a-Lago was a private mansion Mm. that he converted into a private club. Right. For tax reasons. Uh, For tax reasons. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. And part, part of the tax exemption he got was that he wouldn't live there for more than 40 days a year or whatever the number was. Right. So it was a small number of days a year. Yeah. And the fact that he's fully in residence, apparently the local city or who is pissed about it. Uh, probably. Basically, they reckon that he owes them tax because it's now a residence. It's not a private club. Yeah. So, Joe, the lock on the door, like apparently Trump put out a picture of the lock on the door trying to emphasise the security that he'd taken. And it was just a really simple lock that you wouldn't use to lock your bicycle up at a railway station. And you were describing to me before we started, you've decided on an interesting hobby, Joe. What Tell the dear listener what you're doing in your spare time with locks. Oh, lock picking. So lock picking <laughs> is a recognised hobby which requires manual dexterity and, and visual thinking about what it looks like inside. And intellectual rigour. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so, so don't poo-poo it, Trevor. <laughs> well, it's it's more the... Recognised hobby. It's, it's quite scary when you look at it. When you, when you know what you're looking for, mm. how easy it is to pick a lock and how easy it is to not even need to pick a lock. Quite often there are insecurities, either in the way that the doors are put on mm. or in the way that a lock is built that allows you to not even need to pick it. So you've got a transparent lock. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know how well it'll show up. Mm. Put it in front of your face, it might. Yep. But right. there's a double-sided, yep. Yep. Transparent lock. Yep. Where you can see the inner workings, and as you learn to pick, you can see it move inside, and that allows you to get a feel for everything. Yeah. So can you actually unpick that lock now, or you need more practice? I don't know. I can do both sides of that. Right. I also bought some cheap padlocks from the dollar store or whatever they were. Yeah. So okay. That that little one, yes. Chinese one. Yeah. With a so normally you use what's called a tension tool, and then you use a pick, mm-hmm. and you don't even need a tension tool with this thing. You literally just scrub it a few times, and it'll pop open. There you go. So a cheap lock that looks still relatively sturdy. It mm. would take you some cutting to get through that yes i can pop that open within 10 seconds joe's lock picking services <laughs> there you go do yeah I'm, a, a well-built lock would take a bit longer and a bit more skill but yeah. we think a 10 dollar lock from a hardware store is secure and well, a, a cheap lock like that there's another thing let's see if i can yeah there's there's a bit of play in there right. these are only held together by a little metal spring Right. And you actually force something down the inside of the barrel there, mm-hmm. pops uh, the a thin bit of metal, and it pops the screen. Right. And you don't even need to pick the lock. And my guess is that whatever was securing Trump's secret documents, you could probably shim it like that. 
Yes. And pop it open within five seconds. Yes. Yep. So incredible state secrets of America regarding mm-hmm. nuclear codes hidden in the basement of a building that's full of staff, waiters, waitresses, all sorts of people wandering the halls. Any Mossad or Russian or Chinese spy, they've probably got a copy of all the documents already. They've probably copied them in the last couple of months and and they know exactly what's in there. It wouldn't surprise, would it? Well, you'd hope, given that the Secret Service are yep. protecting that place, that there's at least some rigour around who's hired. Yeah. So apparently it seems that they know s- that the authorities seem to have known so much about where to go and what they would find that there could be a mole in the Trump organisation, a well-connected one. Certainly, it sounds like the Republicans are freshening about that at the moment. Mm. And uh, I think people are pointing the finger at Jared Kushner. Apparently, he got $2 billion from the Saudis for some undisclosed reason. So mm-hmm. that would be interesting. I hope I live long enough to find and hear all of the secrets that come out of the Trump presidency and now also the Morrison prime ministership. <laughs> You know, some of the stuff that's going to come out about Trump, we will just shake our heads at. Well, is it 50 years before records are declassified? Uh, I was kind of hoping it might be 30. I might I might last long enough. I don't know. Yeah. So, oh, dear. So what have we got here? So that's the Trump story in summary, I think. I don't need to go through all of the sections in that. It's in the show notes if you want to read about it. Melania or melanoma? Did I write melanoma, did I? No, no, no. No. John Simmons said a mole. Oh. Melania. Yes. And I said melanoma. Yeah. People are joking that because who's his former wife who was? Ivana. Ivana. And she was buried in some nondescript part of his golf course. Again, probably for a tax reason. Cemeteries probably make give you some tax deduction. I would have thought it's one reason why. Mm. Right, what else have I got here? What's the time? Eight fifty-five. We can't go two hours, Joe, like last time. That was just an endurance for people. I think I was testing the friendship with people on that one. Opening arguments as a podcast. If you want to know more about that Trump stuff, it's very good, and mm, of course. He had a couple of other things happen because he's been investigated because on the one hand he was overstating the value of properties in order to get loans this against them. This was New York, them. wasn't it? Mm. And on the other hand, for the same properties, he was understating their value for taxation purposes. So it seems like there's a trial over that which has got him in a lot of hot water and... I think that's the one where he was pleading the fifth, refusing to testify on the basis that it might incriminate him. And he's on the record in the past as saying, why would anybody rely on that? Just tell the truth and you'll be fine. You're obviously guilty if you, you, know, if you maintain your silence. But, I think it was about a president he was saying that as well. Hmm. So that's what he's up to. And there was one other thing that got him as well. He had bad news 
There's a third thing for Trump. I just can't remember what it was, but it might have been about oh, being forced to produce his taxation records. That was the other one. Right. He lost a round in that battle as well. It's been a bad week for the Donald. But look, he's going to run again if he can because I see in the chat room John says Trump running. He will see it as his best defence to all of these legal actions if he can win the he presidency. He believes that he can't get prosecuted as president. Mm. So for sure he'll run. And Joe, he's a half a chance of winning if he, if he has a go. Well, there's concerns about the whole voter suppression laws. If it's done in key states, of course, there was also the opposite of that, which if you remember was the very people who wouldn't take vaccines are the Republican voters in swing states. Right. So and they so, might have died off. Is that what you're saying? Right. Yep. Yeah. There's. It will be interesting in the next election to see how many voters actually remain in those swing states. Right. Yep. Demographic shift. Mm. The other one was the Kansas. Yeah, abortion. Uh, yes. Mm. So With the the attempt to change the constitution of Kansas to allow abortions or to, to ban abortions, sorry, to allow them to ban abortions, which at the moment is unconstitutional. And they were saying that the 2020 elections, they'd doubled the usual voter turnout. This one they have, I think, quadrupled the usual voter turnout for this referendum. Right. And it was 60%, I believe, against changing the constitution. Mm. So Roe v. Wade, uh, the case said, there's in the Constitution power where the federal government can prevent states from passing laws that stop abortion. The recent decision said, no, Roe v. Wade's wrong. There's nothing in the Constitution about abortion. Therefore, it's up to the individual states to decide what laws they want for their state. And people were worried that Kansas would be one that would legislate to ban abortions and surprisingly strong turnout the other mm. way surprisingly strong progressive turnout so mm. the john barillaro affair is like scott morrison where these people just treat us like shit because they think they can get away with anything and he wanted a you know, the New South Wales government was creating this plum job for a trade commissioner in the US, had an excellent candidate appointed, and he engineered for that appointment to be done by the Premier effectively rather than the but process that was there. Apparently there was already a trade job in Los Angeles mm. and somebody was in that post and he said, no, 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 that's not good enough. It needs to be in New York. Mm. They closed down the Los Angeles trade position, mm. created this new one. Yep. And, and apparently he was saying when it was created, oh, this is my retirement job, yes. basically. Yeah. And they had a candidate, a, a lady who was very, very well qualified, like a really long CV of roles that were ideally suited for this versus John Barillaro, who has nothing and 
uh, of course, they told her, no, sorry, the process we're going through, you're no longer doing it that way. All bets are off. And then they did it a different way and appointed him, like just scandalous. And I think I mentioned what a waste of money this would be having a state-based trade commissioner in an overseas posting. And there was an article in the John Menadue blog where John Menadue, when he was ambassador for Australia in Japan, found himself having to sort of deal with different state government agents who are in Japan in these sort of trade roles and basically saying they did nothing, they achieved nothing. It was a complete waste of time having a separate state-based trade commissioner. And that, to me, makes a lot of sense. So I shouldn't even have the job in the first, you know, let alone just get the right person, but just don't even have the job in the first place. Right. It was a, it was a retirement posting, wasn't it? it was, yeah. Yeah, a plum job. Well, Joe, I'm going to – my voice is starting to go, so I'm going to call it quits because an hour and a half keeps us out of the shark tank. I saw Landon Hardbottom was in the chat room earlier, and so we've got through that, and, yeah, we've got through the Morrison stuff. It was good to return to a bit of Morrison bashing. No doubt next week I would think there'll be a lot of evidence about decisions that he made using these powers, like the gas fields one, and what a mess – what a, what a mess that is going to be. And shame on anybody who goes, eh, big deal. Eh. These conservatives who claim that the liberal national conservative forces are, are the only ones who can properly run government in the way it's supposed to be run. They just shamelessly. Do you have any squash matches coming up? Do I have any squash matches coming up? Mm. Uh, no. Right, right Tony. Uh, uh, right Tony doesn't play squash. Oh, is it not? No. Oh, was it badminton? No. No. I thought you played something. I play him. squash, but Right Tony doesn't play squash. Okay, but I am he, just interested to hear his thoughts. I'll, I will let you know. Even he, I don't. You know, I don't know. I don't know what people. I don't mm. know. Because when I was reading some of those Australian comments, I was channeling right-wing Tony a little bit in my mind. So anything's possible. But shame on anybody who's going to excuse what happened there in any way. I mean, our democracy is all about we know who we're voting for. We vote for them. We put them in power. They are accountable for what they do. We know who did what. So then we can decide whether we vote for them again or vote them out and any form of unnecessary cloaking, hiding, secrecy, totally unnecessary. And, you know, this, those comments in that section are an example where those people were faced with the correct facts. The stories and articles they were reading, I give credit to the Australian and the Courier Mail were pretty straight factual accounts of what had happened. They weren't led into, these people were not led into into these crazy positions by the framing done in the story. They've, they've read the story and they are so tribal, they're so brainwashed, they're so lacking in understanding of, of what good civics is in our society. They have no 
proper understanding of what a breach of something important that whole thing was. So it's a bit frightening. You just can't say, oh, I wish these people could read more widely and then they'd know what's going on and they wouldn't think that way. They'd read the facts and they'd come to a crazy conclusion. But people who vote right-wing tend to be more authoritarian. Yes. They believe that the people in power are correct and should do everything that they need to do. Except if it's Labor in power. Well, yeah, obviously. And it's Dictator Dan being authoritarian. Well, yeah. (laughs) It's tribalistic. John says they didn't read the story, and that's quite true. Ah. Lots of people just read the headline. Yeah. Yeah. Even the headline, Morrison secretly appointed without telling people, should be enough. It should be enough. I think we need, if we get rid of religious instruction in schools, there should be more on civics as to what's important in terms of our democracy and uh, and also just critical thinking and and, well, and also learning to, how to critically evaluate news headlines. Yes, and and read through the propaganda. So mm-hmm. it's yeah a worrying development the comment section in that paper. So anyway. I'll be looking at it through the week and uh, and I will subject you all to a bit more next week, perhaps. All right. Well, that's enough for tonight. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week. I'll go on. Say goodbye, Joe. All right. It's a good night from him. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said and when you're talking to your friends say hey I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to and maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out the other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just It'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event... You can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.